So, uh, I remember, as I was saying when I was a kid, probably about JJ's age, I guess, though, uh, I remember my dad's parents reading True Detective magazine. Do you guys remember that? Anybody remember True Detective magazine? Okay. Uh, I mean, honestly, it was, it was really tabloid trash, if we're being truthful about it, but it had these great artistic covers, like of, of daring lawmen and, and these cringing suspects and, and, and damsels in distress, right? Uh, with really catchy headlines, like the case of the taxi cab killer, uh, or, or the spiked heel murders, or, uh, or I married a mobster, right? And, and it had these, had these mock-ups inside of actual uh, crime scenes complete with black and white photos of, of police tape and, and chalk outlines. And it's kind of in that same vein uh, of true crime stories that we come today to Psalm 60, uh, a Psalm of David that I'm going to show you has all of the elements of those gripping accounts of heroes and villains combined with one of the most tenacious and ruthless criminal families of all time uh, and the sworn enemy of God's people. Does that have I piqued your interest? Okay, well, if not, that's the sermon that's coming anyway. So, But, but, but I, seriously, I hope so, because in these few verses, in this one tiny psalm, they tell an important story. It's a story uh, just as diabolical as any account of any criminal mastermind, uh, but in the end, more heroic than any self-sacrificing police officer or undercover detective, because Psalm 60 actually provides a detailed outline of the story of our adversary Satan's ultimate defeat and also the establishment of God's eternal kingdom of righteousness and justice through the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And brothers and sisters, that's a story worth repeating. And we're going to be coming at it maybe from a little different angle, uh, one that maybe you haven't, uh, haven't seen before. So, so make sure you put your seats in an upright position, right? <laughs> Open your eyes, stretch and yawn, because I'm going to stretch your brains a little bit today. Uh, we're reading Psalm 60, a psalm of David. I'm going to skip over the superscription today and go straight to verse 1. But the psalmist writes, O God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. O restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You've given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those that fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow. Selah. If you remember, that means stop and think about what we've just read. That your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness. With exultation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the veil of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom, I cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly, for it is he who will tread down our foes. It's the word of the Lord. So I'm sure right now, at least one of you, if not maybe more, is probably thinking, okay, Joe, I just read that psalm right along with you, and I have no clue what you're talking about, uh, or what your sermon opening had to do with any part of Psalm 60. Am I right? Right. 
So what I want you to see today, though, is prophetically... Yeah, say what? Yeah. It's prophetically the psalmist David uh, gives us within the verses of this psalm a kind of a keyhole glimpse into Satan's attempt to undermine God's plan of salvation by using the corrupt intentions and criminal actions of the people of the nation of Edom against his chosen people of Israel. And through the lens of Psalm 60, we're going to see how our enemy, the devil, tries to use these Edomites to prevent, if possible, the birth of the Messiah into the world. And if not, how he at least intended to frustrate God's plan at every turn and to harass God's chosen people at every opportunity. Because as you're going to see, it's a pattern that's repeated over and over and over again throughout the entire Bible, uh, right from the very beginning. Uh, if you recall, uh, way back in the Old Testament, the first book in Genesis, uh, when God revealed his intentions to use the descendants of Jacob, to use the Israelites to be the family line of the Messiah, uh, it's also when Satan, who loves to counterfeit God's design, made a plan too. Plan to use the descendants of Jacob's twin brother Esau to be the father of the Edomites, just like these two dear little brothers that we have together right now, but to use them for his own evil purposes. Because you see, Satan knew from the beginning that one day the Messiah would come to crush his head, just as God had told Eve in the Garden of Eden, but he didn't know when, and he didn't know how. And so like a frustrated terrorist who knows his plans has failed, Satan uses every opportunity to try to disrupt or, or to delay God's plan of redemption. And he started with those two twin sons of Isaac, Jacob and Esau. Uh, two men whose relationship trouble, you remember, started even while they were still in the womb. You remember God uh, told their mother, Rebecca, in Genesis 25, 23, I said, the sons in your womb will be two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. So now, anybody who grew up in Sunday school, you guys know the story of Jacob and Esau, right? How Esau traded his birthright. But what did he trade it for? Yeah, a bowl of stew, right? You remember the story. And how when Esau realized how foolish he had been, he went and begged his father to restore his position, but it was too late. And from that time on, the Bible tells us that Esau hated his brother and planned to kill him if he could. But now here's the part of the story that you may not know. Years pass from that time. Uh, Jacob gives up his swindling ways and he draws closer and closer and closer to God. But Esau doesn't. Esau's heart hardens. And, and through Satan's promptings and his own evil desires, Esau pulls further and further away from God until finally uh, he takes everything he has and moves away from his brother Jacob and out of their father's lands. And he sets out for a foreign territory, nursing a resentment that Satan would exploit over and over again down through the centuries between the children of these two men. So keep that in the back of your mind. Now fast forward uh, now to the place where Esau settles south of Jerusalem, a place that becomes known as the land of Edom. It's the home of his descendants, the Edomites. Their first cousins, remember, to the Israelites, and now they're sworn enemies. And they settle in this mountain terrain. Uh, they settle all the mountains of the area. They build homes and temples. Uh, they actually carve right into the solid rock. And if you're a fan of, of maybe the History Channel or Discovery Channel, you can still see the remains at the city of Petra. Okay, Anybody familiar with Petra? Okay, That's the Edomites. 
And so all the while, though, they're, they're settling this area, their hearts are moving further from God and becoming as hard and as cold as the mountain regions that they are living in. But while Esau moves and settles in a foreign land, remember Jacob's family, as we know, did the same thing. So he moved to Egypt. And as four centuries pass, the Israelites multiply and they prosper. Uh, until the Egyptians, you remember, growing fearful of their numbers and of their prosperity, decide to enslave them. But how through a series of miraculous events, God uh, moves Moses to lead the people out of captivity and into the desert. And this is where the story starts to come together. He moves them directly into an encounter with guess who? Their estranged cousins, the Edomites. And with Satan's continuing plan to harass God's people. So, so picture this, the Jews leave Egypt. And as they're traveling through the desert, they come to the land of Edom. And the Bible tells us that Moses sent ambassadors to the king of Edom with this message. This is what your relatives, the people of Israel, say. You know the hardships that we have been through. Our ancestors went down to Egypt and we lived there for a long time. And we and our ancestors were brutally treated by the Egyptians. But when we cried out to the Lord, he heard us. He sent us an angel who brought us out of Egypt. And now we are camped at Kadesh, a town on the border of your land. So please let us travel through your land. We'll be careful not to go through your fields and vineyards. We won't even drink water from your wells. We'll stay on the king's road and never leave it until we have passed through your territory. The king of Edom replied, stay out. You may not pass through our land. And with that, he mobilized his army and marched out against them with an imposing force. Because Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through their country, Israel was forced to turn around. So here, here's Moses. He's addressing the Edomites as relatives, right? As brothers, as, as cousins. But they're brusquely turned away back into the barren desert they had just come from. And if that wasn't bad enough, then the king of Edom sent out his troops in battle ranks to show the people of Israel that he meant business. And this is what I want you to get from this. Think about it now. This has been 400 years after Esau and Jacob parted ways, okay? And these families are still fighting. You think a family feud can go on that long, right? Well, yeah, some of you maybe, right? But th now think about it like this, though. This coming year on July 4th, it's only going to be 244 years since we became independent from England. Uh, they're not still holding the grudge, do you think? Right? Or it's only been 75 years since the, or so since the end of World War II, and we're not still mad at Germany and Japan, right? I mean, for heaven's sakes, even the Hatfields and the McCoys declared an official family truce in 2003. So, so how could a family feud go on so long? Well, you know, it could if there were darker forces behind it. But, you know, thankfully, that's not the end of the story where they clash. Uh, there's more to this than just a family feud because in the very next verse we're going to look at, God also sends a message of hope a message of hope for Israel and for us, and a message that we can hold on to today. We're right in the middle of this family infighting. We read, dip back into Psalm 60 and read, but you, O Lord, have set up a banner for those that fear you, that they may flee to it, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. And so as David is kind of in the midst of this, he sees an end to this family fighting in sight and he has a vision of when all of this is going to happen and when this is going to pull together in what he calls the day that the Lord will set up a banner for those that fear him that we all can flee to it 
That day when God, through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, dies on the cross. A day on Mount Calvary where God's perfect righteousness and His relentless love for humanity are reconciled and where the devil's fate is finally sealed and that last enemy of God's people is defeated. But, you know, the devil doesn't give up so easily. And in an effort to keep that promised day from coming, Satan makes a last-ditch effort to defy God by influencing three of the most powerful and infamous descendants of Esau. Three men who didn't just harass the followers of God, but actually tried to prevent the birth of the Messiah, tried to silence the ministry of Jesus, and tried to stop the spread of the gospel. Uh, three men who you're going to recognize and whose lives take us to some of the most familiar stories of the New Testament, maybe just a side you hadn't noticed before. And the first of those three men was Herod the Great. And what I want to show you is how this ancient feud we've been talking about between the sons of Jacob and the sons of Esau continued directly into Herod's family and intertwined with the lives of Jesus and his apostles. So picture Herod the Great. It's 40 B.C. Here's Herod, an Edomite. Actually, 38 generations directly descended from Esau. And he's granted the title of king of Judea by the Roman Senate, who, who in return for that expected Herod to keep the peace and to support his Roman benefactors with heavy taxes. And I want you to see how Matthew introduces this uh, in Matthew chapter 2 in this kind of larger narrative from the gospel. If you remember, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we've come to worship him. The king Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. Now, normally when we read this, we look at the Christmas story. But there's other things that are happening here. So, so Herod, this 38 times great-grandson of Esau, uh, is disturbed. He's disturbed because he's been given the title of king of the Jews by the Romans and he's planning on giving it to his own sons, none of which are babies when the wise men show up. And this is how the story continues in verse 3. After the wise men were gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up and flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there till I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him, and so he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. So, so you have to imagine the savagery of that command, right? And, and the lengths that Herod would go to because of his own pride and because of Satan's prompting to hold on to earthly power and to sabotage God's plan, if he could, trying to kill the infant Jesus. But being warned by God, Joseph took uh, Mary and Jesus to Egypt for safety. And the gospel story goes on to say that Joseph didn't bring the family back to Nazareth until after Herod was dead. And that comes to us from Matthew chapter 2. It tells us, When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said, and take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who are trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. But when he learned that a new ruler of Judea was Herod, son Archelaus, that's the second persecutor of our holy family today, he was afraid to go there. And then after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. And you know, this is a perfect picture, I think, 
You know that Satan can make his schemes. He can have his puppets and earthly power here. But ultimately, everything works out together for God's purpose. Because you know, brothers and sisters, God is never pacing the floor of heaven wondering what he's going to do next. Right? He, he's not worried about how everything down here is going to work out. He's on his throne and, and he's in control. Even when we come to our, our third persecutor today, Herod the Great, uh, other son, Herod Antipas, who inherited the Galilean section of his father's divided kingdom, along with all of his father's moral weaknesses. And this Herod starts out on the wrong foot by marrying his sister-in-law. You remember that story? He marries the ex-wife of his half-brother, Philip. And when John the Baptist preached against their immoral marriage, Herod threw John in prison and had him beheaded. But you know, as bad as that was, the thing this particular descendant of Esau is most infamous for is not the beheading of Jesus' cousin John, but for the part he played in the crucifixion of the Son of God. Right, you remember how at Jesus' arrest, Pontius Pilate tried to have him set free? Remember he said he couldn't find any reason to condemn him? But wanting to please the Jews, he sent Jesus to the local authorities. He sent him right to Herod for a trial because Jesus was from Galilee. And that's recorded in Luke chapter 23. It tells us Pilate turned to the leading priests and to the crowd and said, I find nothing wrong with this man. They became desperate. But he causes riots everywhere he goes, all over Judea from Galilee to Jerusalem. Oh, he's a Galilean, Pilate asked. And when they answered that he was, Pilate sent him to Herod Antipas because Galilee was under Herod's jurisdiction. And Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at the time. So now here's how the story pulls together. Herod's father right, hadn't been able to kill the baby Jesus, did he? And now, here Jesus stands, the promised Messiah, the hope of Jacob, right in the court of Herod Antipas, descendant of Esau, bringing to a head this long-standing family feud that David referenced all the way back in Psalm 60. And then we find out Herod was actually pleased. He was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus because he had heard about him and hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. And he asked Jesus question after question, but Jesus refused to answer. And so just like Esau traded his inheritance and his sacred blessing for momentary gratification, now his descendant is trading this moment that he has with Jesus for just the hope of seeing a miracle, for just a temporary pleasure that he can wring out of it rather than seeking the Jesus he needs for salvation that's right in front of him. So Herod asked him to perform a miracle like a circus sideshow for entertainment. But Jesus ignores him. He just kept his peace. He just trusted in the Heavenly Father. Uh, and that's powerful for him and for us. Because, you know, trusting in God doesn't mean we never face opposition, does it? It doesn't mean we don't ever get frightened or anxious, does it? It doesn't mean we don't ever let those feelings uh, get out of control, though. Because, verse 10 goes on to say, Meanwhile, the leading priests and teachers of the religious law were shouting their accusations. Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. They put a royal robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. You know, Jesus could have argued for his innocence, but he didn't. He just stood there. He accepted the abuse. He accepted the accusations because he knew where he was headed. He knew his role in the grand salvation narrative that David had pointed to. And now Herod would unwittingly be a part of bringing together that salvation that God had planned at Christ's crucifixion. What Herod meant for evil, 
God meant for good because ultimately in God's kingdom there's no loose ends, are there? The Bible tells us in Proverbs 16, 4, the Lord works out everything for its proper end, even the wicked for the day of destruction. And you know, all of the plans of Esau and Satan, uh, all of them work together for Jesus, but time and circumstances can never prevent God's plan from coming together. Even when our lives seem like they're a never-ending stream of opposition from the enemy, just one attack after another, nothing falls outside of the Father's hands. And we can put our trust in Him to handle those outcomes right to the end. You know, it kind of reminds me when I was doing research on this sermon, it was like when Billy Graham uh, made that famous quote, he said, don't worry about it, I've read the last page of the Bible and we win. Because we know one day the Lord Himself is coming back to reign on Mount Zion. When the house of Jacob claims not just an inheritance in land, but an inheritance in our Savior. That day when the king is going to establish himself in Jerusalem and the empire of God is going to be in control. So if your faith is faltering when you look at the world around you, if you're struggling to carry on that daily grind, if you feel like you're under Satan's attack day after day uh, and you need hope for the future, don't look around you. It's nothing new. The faces can change, but the enemy is always the same, right? And we know his days are numbered. So brothers and sisters, fix your eyes on Jesus. Run to him. Reach for his banner because one day, and one day very soon, he's coming back to take us home. Amen. Are you ready? Amen. Let's pray together.